Welcome to this episode of the podcast, Guess What You're Gonna Hate. I'm Janine. And I'm David. And this is a podcast about exposing someone to the very worst and sometimes best, but mostly worst pop culture of the 2000s. And let me tell you something, worst does not begin to cover the movie that I had to watch for this episode. I'm sorry. (laughs) I'm so, so sorry to everyone. Before we get into the movie, which for this episode is The Black Dahlia, made in uh, 2006, directed by Brian DePalza, I would love for you, David, to introduce yourself, let the audience know about you, your podcast, anything you want to tell them. My name is David Hanna. I am one half of the podcasting super duo Macintosh and Mod. We actually have three different shows. Uh, we watch My Little Pony, Friendship is Magic, and that's our flagship show, which is also known as Macintosh and Mod. We also have a currently on hiatus show, because the season is over, called The Dog House, which is a podcast about the show Riverdale on CW. Uh, it's awesome, <laughs> because it's so crazy what goes on there. And then we have a movie podcast called Macintosh and Mod Haven't Seen What, in which we make each other watch movies we think we should have already seen. The fun part is getting to do a lot of different movies. We're actually in a documentary series right now. Ooh. So do you like, when you're speaking about documentaries, do you like like this investigative? Because, I mean, the Black Dahlia at first, I was going to be like, oh, is this like, you know, a true telling of this horrible, awful murder that was done in the 1940s? Like, was that kind of what inspired you to watch this movie at first? No. What inspired us to watch this movie was the trailer. So to go back... In 2006, we (laughs) went to the theater and saw a trailer for a very intriguing little movie called The Black Dahlia. And the trailer is cut really, really well. So we were super excited. We were all invested. We went to the theater. And this is probably the only time we've almost been mad enough to walk out on a movie. (laughs) So set the scene here. When you say we went to the theater, who came with you? It was me and my wife, Diana. Uh Uh-huh. So we, we, I mean, we're huge movie buffs. Like we, mm-hmm. we also try to go to a movie every weekend. So on our movie podcast, we'll review one because we, that's just what we like to do. Our date nights are movie nights. So this was date night. So you guys like, did you go out for a dinner? You're like excited talking over it. Like, I can't wait to go see the Black Dahlia tonight. <laughs> um, I don't, I don't know. I'll have to ask. Were we, were we having dinner? Were we like talking this movie up the whole time? <laughs> We were we were we were thoroughly enjoyed. I don't remember because in college, like there were there were a couple of theaters, especially one across from Denton where we went to school. That was like a a five dollar student theater like every night. And so it was just up the road. So we just drive over there and go see a movie because it was dirt cheap. (laughs) But we we then proceeded to watch this garbage fire of a film. <laughs> I hate to revel in your pain, but there's something really adorable about you guys saying you're in college. So like college aged couple excited to go into a movie theater. Like I don't know if you had popcorn, but I'm like imagining you like with those comically large buckets of popcorn <laughs> and like just like excited watching the movie. Like here it is, here's it coming, and then it opens up with this riot out of no it doesn't open up with a riot it opens with this guy just talking in a locker room with this horrible dead narration like no emotion at all i feel so bad because josh hartnett seems like a really good dude and kind of an okay (laughs) actor what happened what's really interesting about josh hartnett's acting style is that maybe like his voice is just too normal And, like, when you're watching it on television or, I mean, on a movie like this, it just doesn't translate well because it's just, it's too common. It it just, like, people do talk in flat affects, but that's not what we're looking for in a movie. It's also not what we're looking for in what is supposed to be a neo-noir 1940s movie. Yeah, in a narration for sure. It's like all these crazy twists are happening and he's like... Wow, and then I realized that actually what was going on. And you're just like, really? Like, make me invested. But what's strange is, like, his body language, his acting, his expressions, they're all very good. It's just his voice doesn't tie it together. So half of the people in this movie don't understand that they're in a stylized noir movie. <laughs> that's that's our issue here. To be fair, I don't think the cinematographer knew that either. Uh <laughs> Well, anybody doing the set dressing and also our screenplay, uh, our screenwriter had no idea. De Palma <laughs> did because he clearly styled it to look that way. 
yeah. and blocked it that way. But no, nothing about this movie is actually going to indicate that they're in 1947 or something mm-hmm. and that it's supposed to be an old school style noir. Yeah. Like they're supposed to be hard boiled. They're supposed to be saying all these ridiculous things. Yeah. I love one of the pieces of trivia though, that they say the word wannabe and it was like, wannabe didn't come into popular use until the eighties. <laughs> yeah. And I, I almost felt like some of their slang was distracting because they used so much, like for one, t- one, one scene, he says to one of the characters played by, uh, Oh, it's the character played by um, Hillary Swank. And he says, oh, and then you just rabbited on out of here. And it's like, okay. <laughs> like, I get you're trying to use the slang, but was that really any easier to say and then you ran away? Like, I... It, I <sighs> it's because it's based off the James Elroy novel. Mm-hmm. And I'm... Which I'm sure is a fantastic novel. Maybe, but okay. Knowing some of the details about the Black Dahlia murder, it's not one of the ones... I, I'm I'm usually more captivated by, like, the actual darkness of the serial mm-hmm. killer and not really, like, the, the unsolved mystery one. Those are the stories that just grab me. Mm-hmm. But there's so many things that they don't get right at all. And yeah. I feel like that's partly Elroy's book. Is, I yeah. mean, he, he specifically says, like, this is a completely fictionalized account. Yeah, but the movie opens with that tagline based on real events. And then at the credits, when you're sitting there sitting, like, what the hell did I just watch? The credits actually says, while the book was, (laughs) while the book was based on real events, this movie was based on the fictional account in this book by this. It's like, okay. Correct. That's (laughs) because really, I mean, would this movie change drastically if it were not based on a real murder? Uh, would this story work that way if it were just a fake? Do- yeah. No, it still wouldn't. I mean, it's still terrible. I mean, it doesn't matter. They don't go into any of the real suspects or, I mean, like you could talk about the sensationalized yellow journalism surrounding Elizabeth Short's death, like that kind of culture, but not actually name Elizabeth Short. And in a lot of ways, I think it contributes to this like really nasty, like smear campaign on Elizabeth Short as to like calling her like a prostitute or like you know um a sexually promiscuous woman all that kind of stuff that was used to sensationalize these murders and this is another like long step in it. it's like why are why are we allowed to do this why are they allowed to do this so before we keep picking at this um because <laughs> there's so much more to get into because <laughs> there's so much more to get in and usually I like to do a plot review but i did want to say one thing before i forget and I, and I mentioned that i didn't like the cinematography of this film and one thing, like, when you're talking about a noir style, like, yeah, sure, there's a style aspect to it, but there's also a visual aspect to it. Like, the reason noir film is so popular is the contrast is high, the black and white film makes the colors, like, the shadows pop, the light is really important, whereas this film, if you look at the the poster, like, the promotional image for the Black Dahlia, it's kind of got this really nice cool wash to it with this deep dark red on her lips like a stylized profile but the trailer and the film itself is like this sepia tone warm toned like it doesn't fit with the tone of the movie and definitely doesn't fit with the idea of a noir uh i i would argue that there is no tone of this movie (laughs) it wildly goes back and forth I, I, I think I think to to that end, I can't really say much other than you've got to go look at the plot itself because that yeah. that dives into all of the issues around it. And honestly, this plot is so incredibly difficult to summarize because this movie doesn't even know what it's trying to do half the time. And for like I like to try and defend people like when I have this immediate knee jerk, I was like, oh, this is awful. It's like, well, you know, someone worked really hard on this. So this movie was a long two hours. And it was originally three hours. And honestly, from the sound of it, that three hour cut actually makes a whole lot of sense. Yeah, like even one of the um because I was reading, I love how IMDb has trivia, and uh, <laughs> when it's you know, of course, you have to go make sure that it's true. But um, James Elroy loved the initial print of Brian De Palma's cut at three hours, and he even wrote an essay about it uh, called "The Hill Hillikers," which was published in reissued prints of the novel, and that were released before the film premiered. 
But in that interim between when he initially watched the first cut and the film was released, he it was it was significantly edited. And after seeing the theatrical cut, he refused to comment on it except to tell the Seattle Post Intelligencer, look, you're not going to get me to say anything negative about the movie, so you might as well give up. That's okay, Elroy. We are happy to say negative things about it for you. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. I have a very difficult task for you today, oh. and that is to try and give a plot rundown of this movie where you don't have to say, wait a minute, I need to go back and explain what happened before to make this sense. And I don't know if that's possible, so I'm looking forward to it. Oh, okay. Um, well, first of all, let's start off with the initial subplot, which makes no sense. Because I'm just going to try and do this in chunks. I'm not going to try mm-hmm. to recall the entire thing. Um, <laughs> the first 15 minutes of this movie are a boxing film. <laughs> Literally a boxing film in which Bucky Bleichert, played by... Uh, Josh Hartnett. This is Josh Hartnett. And then, I don't even... Lee Blanchard, played by Aaron mm-hmm. Eckert, are these two former boxers who are now in the LAPD... And somehow this fight is going to raise enough money to pay for all the detectives. And if they have this fight and it goes the right way, then they're both going to wind up in warrants so they can actually get their feet wet as detectives. They're using it as a publicity event to like drum up support for Proposition B, which will get them more funding if people vote on it, which seems like... If I were if I were in a town riddled with crime, because this movie opens with like the background of the Zoot Suit riots too, which was a racially motivated quasi patriotic riot against like minorities who were wearing too much fabric in their suits at a time when people were supposed to be rationing these things. If that were happening in my town, and then I hear the police say, like in their posters, whatever, like, hey, we want to get you to support us having more funding. The way we're going to do that is going to have two of our actual cops, not boxers that we then asked like if they would do this for free, two of our cops who could be working on cases to make your city safer fight each other in the ring. How's that sound? And these people were like, oh, yeah, hell yeah, let's do it. I'm voting for it. But only if this one dude loses, the other one loses. No way. Well, so even before we get there, we still get our first yucky, yucky trope of this movie which is we're showing the Zoot Suit riots, the cops and the Navy guys are fighting. We actually see nobody in a Zoot Suit. <laughs> but ostensibly, the cops and the sailors are beating up the guys in Zoot Suits, and then all of a sudden, here comes white savior Lee Blanchard, <laughs> who is fighting off four Navy sailors off of one guy who's in a Zoot Suit. But then it turns out that this guy's also a murderer. <laughs> Which we don't find out until about 20 minutes into the movie. It's like already you're getting inundated with all these plot lines that don't make sense. So many times that I had to rewind the movie and say, what is going on right now? And by the way, have nothing to do with the Black Dahlia. (laughs) Yeah. Nothing. Nothing. I remember remember putting down here that just these two talking, I was like, neither of these two have charisma. Where is the charisma? (laughs) The, the boxing scene is the dumbest, hackiest boxing scene in the world, which I, I, I they, they trained for seven months at four hours at a time to do this boxing scene. And I'm just like, all this is, is a bad copy of Raging Bull. Like, there's nothing good about how they're fighting up here. Yeah. And again, like I said, I was going to try not to go like, oh, but then walk it back. But yeah, we have to walk it back because this motivation in the boxing scene is not just the getting money for the police department, the main character, Bucky, who actually, I'm ashamed to admit, I thought the other guy, Lee, was named Bucky. So in my notes, I actually had to go back when I realized this uh, three quarters of the way through the movie, I had to go back and replace all my Buckies with Lee. <laughs> Anyway, um, That's good. Uh, <laughs> he is struggling with his dad, who is obviously senile, and he wants to get him into a home. So he places a bet against himself. So he is planning on throwing the match, but then he gets in there and he's like, actually, I am too proud to try and lose. But then actually, like, it's not entirely clear whether he really throws it or not, because... It's really difficult to choreograph a good fight scene and to, like, follow this action. And he tries to do it, but it just says it's kind of like the motivations aren't clear. 
which is kind of funny because this movie has narration. So like they in the parts where like his his motivations are actually clear, they hand like they beat you over the head of it head with it by putting in narration. But in this one part where it might help, it doesn't really pay off. He moves his hand down and then he gets punched by Lee and knocks out all of his teeth. And that one subtle move is intended to show us that he threw the fight. Yeah, but it's not entirely clear because apparently I was reading about it in the book. He actually just plain loses. So it's like, did he throw it? Did he not? And you could say, oh, well, that's just up to interpretation. It's like with a movie like this, I don't think it is up to interpretation. I think it's just bad directing. Not to mention who the fuck cares? Yeah, there is a cool shot, though, where after he gets his teeth knocked out, it shows the blood on like the scorecard. And his teeth on it. Yeah, that's vintage De Palma right there. Yeah, it's fantastic, which kind of, like, gets your hopes up. Like, ooh, this might be, like, really shot really well. But no, it doesn't hold up. Uh, it's sad because I, I I, legitimately understand Brian De Palma to be a good director. I don't know. I haven't seen that many of his movies. But I understand, like, the concept that he is I an mean, amazing director. He's famous for directing things like Carrie, The Fury, Dress to Kill, Scarface. Like Scarface, you know? It's just that sometimes, you know, sometimes he wins, sometimes he don't. And, I mean, in his defense, maybe the three-hour cut was really good. You know? Like, maybe. And he, he apparently has big issues with the studios, like, he, he thinks that their involvement in a lot of this stuff is what really kills it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, my my whole first take here is we are 15 minutes into the movie with a subplot that literally means nothing to anyone <laughs> who came to see it because we're all interested in a murder. Yeah. <laughs> and instead, we're learning about the weird backstory interest between these two guys, which... Then, as soon as we get done with this, we go meet Kay Lake, who is Lee's girlfriend. Um, But this whole thing, as Diana put it, we immediately get the thruple of the century. Right? With these three. (laughs) Like, serious threesome vibes. It's crazy. There There are so many times where they are together. There are moments where, like, as soon as we see Lee start to lose it, and we'll get there on him going, you know, nuts over the Black Dahlia and starting to become abusive. But then all of a sudden, Bucky is there. Why? (laughs) Nobody knows. And in all the scenes where Bucky, like, goes to their house, like, he doesn't, like, knock on the door like a guest would. He just, like, he just opens the door. He's like, I'm here now. Like, hey, I live here. Like, this is my (laughs) house. My girlfriend, too. Like, there's even a scene where they go out to go watch a movie together. And he has this line. is like, she would always sit between us. or No, she would always sit in the middle, but never between us. So it's like, is there like some sexual tension I'm picking up on between the partners here and then also Kay as well? And like she even grabs both their hands when she spooked in this movie, which the only thing I can figure out as to why maybe this plot line was necessary is that movie that they're watching actually becomes significant to like the twist in the end. That's like the only thing that really uh. matters from this is like that <laughs> one little like throwaway fu- <laughs> two-minute scene pays off in the end. I I think we're trying to apply way <laughs> too much logic to the to the filmmaking process here. I, I it's it's just insane how how closely they are related together and how close they they appear to be with each other. So anyway, they wind up in warrants and then work their way up to homicide and so on and so forth. And then there's this second giant subplot, which is Lee is somehow in deep with this guy, Bobby DeWitt. Mm-hmm. So, well, okay. I again don't want to have to go back, but we're <laughs> just, already we're just already fuck there it, man. Anyway. <laughs> like <laughs> because not only do we not only do we have that, but then we have this third side plot of a serial child rapist and burglar. I, whose name I will not remember, but I remember he's like a, he's an Oki, a shit kicker Oki or something like that. And this guy keeps terrorizing. It's Nash, and there Bucky's you know wants to bring down Nash because he's just one of the worst yeah. ones. But Lee is all up on this guy Bobby Dewitt. Mm-hmm. So 
there's there's this drama about them where they're searching for these other criminals and then they go to this they they go to this drug deal or something i guess there's a pimp out in the middle of nowhere in, in LA. like a pet shop <laughs> It's so hard. It's so hard to even, like, I, I watched it. I didn't even think, I, I, I wasn't even trying to pay attention by this point. I literally thought this was, like, pointless when I was watching it until, again, like, it supposedly pays off in the end. But by that time, so much time has passed that you're just like, why? Like, it is utterly pointless. It is. It's just that they absolutely felt like all of it was going to be integral to the final web of the story. Which uh-huh. it's not. So DeWitt gets killed, and it's pretty obvious that Lee is involved in shooting this guy. But they don't they don't give that away right this second. No, that's not DeWitt. That's not him yet. That's what's so terrible. It's like there are so many mo- characters in here that don't matter, like that are mentioned, but like it's not clear. This is not DeWitt. It's like some other guy... Man, I can't even remember his name. It's so pointless. DeWitt is still in jail, and he's going to be released in a few weeks. And this is somebody else who's, like, attached to it. Is this the drug deal guy that, like, had her, had Kay or something like that? Or the bank guy? Bob DeWitt, Bobby DeWitt is the guy who actually, like, it's revealed later that he was involved with Kay, that Kay was one of his right. girls. Knew and, about the like, bank job that Lee had pulled off. Yeah. And this guy at this store, I have, I, it doesn't even matter who he is. He's some other criminal that it looks like Bucky gets saved by Lee because he hears a gunshot and like uh, Lee pushes down uh, Bucky so that he doesn't get caught in the crossfire. And it's later revealed that he's actually the one who shot. He's he's Han Solo. He shot first. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> and like, what's really strange is there's this decision that the director made in this scene. So, they there's like this this storefront where this guy, this criminal, is that they're they're doing this. Uh, they're watching, and a car. It goes like there's a overhead shot that shows all the streets, and they show this black car ignore this woman who's crying out for help and you're kind of like okay what was that like is that the cop's car it's not the cop's car it's those two people that get out and go to that criminal and at first you're like oh okay is this trying to show like this is a part of town where people don't care about other people like you know it's a it's like trying to show like make a statement about like how people don't have empathy for others like is that what this is trying to do it's like no it's just a really like unnecessary way of trying to connect the actual location of the Black Dahlia murder with the cops. Because after this shootout happens, they're, like, putzing around the crime scene, and they see a lot of other cops on, like, one street over, which is where Elizabeth Short's body is discovered. So that's how they managed to get involved in this case. They just happened to be around there at that same time. Which, again, it's like... Is this really a movie? But, like, why call it the Black Dahlia other than, than you know that will sell it? You know? Like, it doesn't... It's not really the main focus of this movie. It's like a prop. And it feels, like, it's so entirely disrespectful to a real woman who was murdered and mutilated and who's who never got any justice for her murder. And we're literally putting her on display in a movie to get something that makes no sense just so it will sell. And... You can take a little bit of comfort in knowing that it did not make that great of a profit. So, <laughs> But I got my money. Um, <laughs> yeah, so at this point, we get 25 minutes into the movie, and we actually reveal the Black Dahlia murder. And so mm-hmm. all the cops suddenly surround this murder, and it is grotesque, and we don't see it, which is smart. It's at this point that I really, I really do question, and a lot of this is that this is literally based off the James Elroy novel. The three-hour cut apparently was incredibly faithful to that novel, Mm -hmm. which at that point, the comprehension comes in Mm -hmm. that this novel, it is part of the trilogy that includes L.A. Confidential and literally is about the detectives. That is the whole idea of the story. 
it was mm-hmm. sold as a movie about the Black Dahlia murders. And again, like if we talk about, like I know we're in the midst of the plot summary right now, but if we talk about the like the backdrop for this movie. L.A. Confidential was a crazy successful movie. It was like it had huge renown. Everyone was so excited about this movie, The Black Dahlia, because of how well L.A. Confidential had been, like how how well it had done, how good it was. And so not only is this movie just in and of itself so confusing and terrible, but it was just inconsistent with what this this uh, stories, these stories had done previously in their cinematic versions. So I'm going to put out my uh, controversial opinion that L.A. Confidential is a boring ass movie that really isn't worth seeing. I've never seen it. So <laughs> I just know that that's what people said online, that it was it was fantastic, which is why the Black Dolly was so bad. people love it. And that's and they think, oh, it's such a good noir. And, you know, I my experience with noir was watching actual original noir. <laughs> like, you know, I, I got into the actual black and white stuff. Killer's Kiss by Kubrick is incredible. Mm-hmm. Not only because it's Stanley Kubrick, but it is a tight 90-minute awesome noir movie. Yeah. And, you and know, this, double thing, this movie is not tight at all. Like, it doesn't... It has so many, like, stories that it's trying to pull in. So many plot lines that, like, trying to make this interwoven, like, complicated tapestry. And it's more like... I don't know if you sew, like, I'm not going to like, you know, assume whether or not you know how to sew, but when you have a sewing machine, sometimes if you don't thread the bobbin correctly, which is a thread that comes up from the bottom, you have this phenomenon called bird nesting, which is literally like your machine just like tangles up so badly and you pull the fabric away and you see there's just a mess of thread at the bottom. The, The top looks okay. But when you turn it over, there's just a bunch of thread. And that's kind of this movie because, like, the trailer looked good. It looked like, oh, there's, like, other interesting parts of this movie, but the murder is the main thing. But then you get into the actual nitty-gritty, into the movie, and it's like it tried too hard to get all these things to happen. Because so they introduce, finally, the Black Dahlia. And, like, just like they were 15, 20 minutes into the movie, we're, like, 30 minutes into this episode about the Black Dahlia, and we're, bare- we're like, almost going finally. time, like, minute by minute, because this is such a weird movie. But um, they get assigned to the case, basically just, like, on the off chance because they were there. Well, they were there, and it's publicity, you yes. two guys are sharp, you look good, which they emphasize by casting complete schlubs to be <laughs> detectives around them. Like, yeah. every other detective <laughs> is at least 15 years older and about 50 pounds heavier. Yeah. Every single one. I was like, at least one other guy. There's got to be, be a, like one more fit. hot cop. Like, not, it is not LA. Even, <laughs> not even hot, but like, at least in fit and able to move around easily. Yeah. And, like, so they don't show the body at first, which I thought was an interesting decision. Because I was like, oh, okay, like, you know, this is, like, not really focusing on this female body on display. I was wrong because they show the body in in great detail during the coroner's report. And, again, it just seems, like, very, like, exploitive because none of these details matter. But they want to go over, like, the gruesome part that would sell, you know, this is a thriller. And it does admittedly get you interested. It's like, oh, are they going to go into, like, the psychology here? Because they kind of mention, like, she's on display, the way she was posed. Like, this guy wanted everyone to know that he hated her, that he thought that she was sexually promiscuous, stuff like that. And, again, like, some of the details do pay off in the plot, like, at the end, like, during those twists where he, like, remembers what the coroner said and whatever. But... It doesn't make any sense to the actual violence that was committed. Like, all of all of the actual details of this murder pointed to... It, it, the actual case pointed to somebody with medical knowledge. Yeah. Somebody who thought this person was sexually promiscuous and, or just, you know, was complete hateful woman hater it does not matter in the end like it does not matter it's it's crazy it's awful it just like uh and, and so like at this point i've paused the movie because i even wrote this in my notes like i've paused the movie oh, and there's God, still yeah. an hour and a half left so we're, we're gonna pick up the pick up the pace here um so Blackheart goes to interview elizabeth short's old roommate because lee's like you need to learn more about this victim because he's going crazy with rose mcgowan god bless her giving maybe the best <laughs> noir performance in the movie 
She was pretty good. She was the only person who knew what movie she was in. Yeah. Because, like, all the other people had, like, strange accents that weren't matching up. Like, someone was like, oh, you're going to be in an old-timey film. Like, I'm going to be in a picture, see? And I'm going to talk like this, yeah? Like, stuff like that. Well, and and Hilary Swank kind of has it believable because her dad is Scottish. And her and her mom is good, British, though. so <laughs> that that mid Atlanticness is still there. No, it's not good, <laughs> but it is. Understandable. I will say that I was impressed by the performance of um, Mia Kirshner uh, in her performance of Elizabeth Short. And I read a little bit about it, and she actually was really diligent in her studying for the role. She refused to look at any of the autopsy photos of Elizabeth Short, and she focused only on the things that people knew about her when she was alive to try and capture her spirit. And it was pretty good, but unfortunately this film does a disservice to it because as Blackert's learning more about Elizabeth Short, he finds... They're not screen tests, but they're like interviews that she did in in an office, and casting couch. Yeah, that kind of stuff. I mean, it really yeah. does get seedy later on, and they're watching it basically being projected onto the wall in the LAPD office, and so when the camera tries to focus on the film, it shows it because the film is square, right? So, but it's a widescreen movie. So they have this gray on either side because that's supposed to be the wall, but it looks so distracting. Like it just like it do- it looks like like movie Windows Movie Maker effects. It's just <laughs> it's just bad. It doesn't look realistic at all, and you're kind of like it loses the context because the only thing that it re- does to remind you that it's being projected is I think they use like the same damn shot every single time they sh- they cut back to B- uh, Bucky's face like as he's watching the film. Like, it feels like every time it was that same just, like, blank expression on his face. Well, except for the stag <laughs> film when they focus on Lee. Yeah. Which, it, my my biggest problem with this was, and I, I will say that I don't know Brian De Palma to have ever been accused of anything involving the scandals that have gone on in Hollywood. In fact, I've, you know, this is a guy whose bread and butter has been sexual thrillers. Yeah. Uh, but... To my knowledge, I haven't heard anybody complain about it. So I, it seems like he runs a, a an understanding set. Yeah, nobody's complained about his behavior, but critics like have written him off as like a perverse misogynist because of his erotic, sexist approach to chopping up women and putting women in peril. But he says like he says in response to this, like, I'm making suspense movies. What else is gonna happen in them? Which like I, yeah. Yeah, like <laughs> it, it's a little it's a little bit of both. I I you know, he's also he's an old white dude, so yeah. there's a lot of that in there. Um only to say that what really turns me off about all of these different films that they see while they're investigating this is that he's the one being the director and his voice just reads so oh, bad. Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know that at all. That is so, creepy. Not to mention the other girl in the film is supposed to be 15. And and, and you know the thing about it is is he's he's playing this idea of three different directors on this these are only the screen tests. The the stag film that they show later mm-hmm. is there's no there's no person talking over it. It's just the two of them with a piece of music. So, you know, the the thing about these screenshots with me, Kirshner, is it's him doing this quote quote unquote coaching. And it just mm-hmm. reads as so bad. And what's fascinating is Mia Kirshner was the one who was coaching behind screen initially. According to the trivia, hmm. she was actually the one doing the voiceover while another actress was going to be doing it. And then they were so impressed with her work Hmm. and what she was bringing to it that they said, why don't you just play Elizabeth? And so that part reads as bad. And then that stag film is just atrocious. it's, It's bad. Because it is so rapey and so bad. And it reads all over her face, which is incredible work by her. But, would never be in this movie if it were made now ever yeah and then also like i want to be clear here is like this is technically based on a real woman's murder and there has never been any well of course there were rumors about it no actual pornographic or actually any films at all in elizabeth schwartz's life were ever produced by investigators like it was never found so again it feels very weird and sensationalist to paint this like because it's not just a nudie film with these two women like making out with each other. the point where lee storms out is where like it 
like Elizabeth Short is crying because there's like a, I mean, I don't want to get into it. It's very rapey and uh, (laughs) it's it's bad. It's awful. So the investigation continues. There is one line that made me laugh when like he's asking around other people who knew Elizabeth and apparently Elizabeth would hang around lesbian bars, which again, that was an actual part in the investigation, the true investigation of the Black Dahlia, but it was kind of written off as not actually going anywhere, but again, plays into that sensationalist idea. So he goes to these lesbian bars and because one of the, the, the roommate play, or played by uh, Rose McGowan goes like, I once saw them talking to a woman wearing a men's suit and sporting a short haircut. And <laughs> Josh Arnett says, Miss Satin. Are you saying they were talking to a lesbian? And it was, <laughs> it was like, okay, all right. This is the '40s dialogue, so okay. And they go to lesbian bars, which is where he spots this woman, uh, Madeline Linscott, and he he doesn't track her down at first, but he writes down her license plate because she rabbits away, as they say. At this time, too, like, Blackert goes, like, to his boyfriend and girlfriend's house just in time to see Kay throwing out all the evidence onto the lawn, begging Lee to stop investigating. And Lee ends up moving his investigation to Blackert's dad's old apartment. Another another giant random subplot that pays off nowhere. So we won't even bother with it. <laughs> it just, like, makes a cool... It just makes, like, a... I guess it's, like, visually interesting to see, like, a, basically a shrine to this woman. And they actually use a real autopsy photo in that, which I thought was a weird choice, but okay. Oh, well, because it's going to pay off at the plot point at the end of the movie. Because the autopsy picture they show is the Glasgow smile that they gave her. Yes. And, again, Lynn's, like you mentioned, Lynn Scott's family is Scottish. So it's like, oh, okay, so, like, obviously... A, a person who's not Scottish couldn't give a Glasgow smile, right? Like, that's the only ones yeah. who know how to do it. So he picks up Linscott, and she, like, asks him to come pick her up again, but, like, a gentleman, not a cop, basically, to go on a date. And he ends up visiting her family. And another weird directing choice is, did you notice it went into a POV camera angle when yes, he's in that house? for no reason. For literally no reason. And it's like... I know sometimes they do that to try and kind of, like, put you in the scene, you know, to make it kind of like the camera is now your eyes, your vision. But, like, it's so jarring, it doesn't do anything effectively. It's just, it's it's weird. An hour into this movie, and we <laughs> haven't done it at all before then. Yeah, there's, like, other weird camera choices, too. There's this specific type of cinematic, or cinematography, like, a, a way you can shoot the film called a split diopter movie shot, which is where they literally make it like it's it's basically like a line down the lens where part of it is in focus and part of it isn't. And I can kind of see like the appeal of it, but it's done so poorly in this movie. Like, for example, <laughs> in one scene where like uh, it kind of blurs the background uh, when he's looking at this newspaper and he looks up to see this suspect in the park. The It's actually Lorna Mertz, who is the underage roommate that shot the nudie, fo- the, the nudie film. It actually ends up blurring part of the newspaper, which so it makes it like completely ineffective. It's like, why are you doing this? But anyway, so they have this awkward, entirely too long family dinner scene. And like Madeline's little sister hands Blykert a sketch of her parents having sex. This is normal rich family dynamics in L.A. <laughs> Yeah, no, normal rich family dinner. This is the kind of guy who shot and stuffed his dog because he wanted to commemorate the day he found out he made his first million because he's never heard of a commemorative plaque. Gee, I wonder if that's going to come back at later in the movie. <laughs> and well, there's like this cuckoo clock in the back because, of course, it's a rich person's house. And at times, like perfectly after Blackheart like looks down at this piece of paper and you hear cuckoo you're like okay like is this supposed to be a suspense film or are you trying to get a laugh out of me like Blackheart and Linscott end up like having sex and it's so funny because he's like post-coital but he has his detective hat back on which you're like why and but he literally does go back into investigating he asks her if he knows anything else and he she like reveals that she had heard about someone who looked like her which is supposed to be Elizabeth Short and the film has to hit you over the head with the idea that they might look like each other because they don't. They don't look anything like each other at all. No, <laughs> at no point. There, there's no dark hair. There's no bright eyes. With, 
with Hillary Swank at all. I mean, that that pays off into the second love scene, which comes after the death of Lee Blanchard, mm-hmm. which is the whole ridiculousness of DeWitt gets out of jail, which is this whole secondary plot with Kay. And since DeWitt's out of jail, they're going to try to find him because he's afraid he's going to go after Lee, I guess. So Bucky tracks this guy down. They're in a... I don't know, a dark city building or something. And then all of a sudden he gets shot and it turns out Lee shot him. And then out of the shadows <laughs> comes this weird dude who's got a garrote who's starting to try to kill him. And then some c- clearly a woman in a suit. We don't know who, but I'm pretty sure I can guess has a knife and there's a struggle, and then Lee and the old dude fall on top of the fountain, and we see the old dude's head split open. Because, oh, it's so gruesome. I mean, just like <laughs> Because Brian De Palma has to put some type of gruesome blood and gore in his movies. Yeah, but it's like, it's, it's it, in that point, it's so inconsistent with the rest of the movie. It's like, you've been kind of like muted on the actual violence here, and then you're going to show us this dude's head splitting on top of this fountain? Like, okay. I mean, on the other hand, it's pretty fucking cool. It is cool, yeah. <laughs> and it actually, it's kind of funny because it, it reminds me of uh, the one of my least favorite movies I reviewed for this podcast was Black Christmas, and he falls <laughs> and gets impaled on a Christmas tree. So, cinematic parallels. <laughs> so, he gets killed, and one of like the drug pushers, like the mafia men that they've been working with, has to cover this up because he gave Lee the initial tip. Uh, so he ends up burning the bodies instead of, like, reporting that he's dead. But he, Blikert does let Kay know about his Lee's death. And then immediately, like, not too long after she's learned that Lee is dead, they start banging because, you know, okay. On the table in the grossest, not grossest, in the least sexy sex scene of yeah, ever seen in Yeah, it's really life. bad. They have no chemistry. Like, they had chemistry kind of like when it was the three of them, but, like, just the two of them, it's just like, ugh. Ah, oh, we should have had a threesome, damn it. <laughs> the transitions, again, it's definitely because they had to cut this movie down from three hours to two hours. It can get really jarring because it goes from, like, they just have sex, and the next day she's like, hey, will you go fix the tile in the bathroom? <laughs> because... That's not a deus ex machina at all. Oh, he finds this pile of money, and we find out that Lee was behind the bank job the whole time. Dun, dun, dun. Okay, so now he confronts her, he gets pissed off, he runs away, and he goes and finds Madeline, Hillary Swank's character. And they have sex again. And then they have sex, <laughs> and then he's like, hey, will you be straight with me? And she's like, well, I did make love to her one time to see what it would be like to make love to myself. So I guess I'm not that straight at all. And he and she like he like calls her like a stupid slut and leaves. <laughs> but uh, that's in like another scene, I think, when he well, calls and her it a was stupid at slut. This po- but... but it was at this point, number one, somewhere around here is, I, we started this movie and I was like, okay, um, what happens if this movie winds up actually good again? Like, <laughs> what happens if we rewatch this and we're like, I don't know. And then it's about this point that Diana looks at me and was like, what did you say about loving this movie again? You know, I wonder if it's exactly around this part where you see, like, because he goes into the Lynn Scott mansion and he's, like, looking around at, like, the photos. And, you know, like, they can't, like, take staged old-timey photos of, like, everybody and get it accurate, sure. But they, like, very poorly Photoshop the actors' faces into this old-timey photo. And I mean, like really badly like the the faces are out of proportion to the actual face i was like oh my gosh like this is like a a real studio movie and you can't like get somebody who didn't just like illegally download photoshop to do this this perfect timing as well like he's looking around he sees this creepy painting of a of a clown of course and uh Kay uh, watches those two make out from outside and then accuses him of sleeping with Lynn Scott just because she looks just like Betty. And then, again, like I said, that there's no... This movie chooses weird times to be subtle and other times to hit you over the head of it. We have just heard this line delivered by Scarlett Johansson is like, you're sleeping with her just because she looks like Betty. You're so sick. 
And then that same statement is then again repeated in narration as he's, like, looking over these photos in the investigation. It's like, we have just heard that. Like, trust us to remember something that happened three <laughs> seconds ago. Well, except I think I think we might have things out of order anyway because he doesn't go to the mansion until much – I feel like he doesn't go to the mansion until, like, the payoff of the last scene. No, I've, I've skipped a little bit because I realized we were waiting up. Like, like, I know. Yeah. There, there's, so much, there's so much crap going yeah, on. Yeah, there's, like, all this he's random crap. He's there during crap. the day, but – <laughs> it's it's also at this point with her that I just realized I was like, oh god, every woman in this movie is just supposed to be this awful human. Yeah, like this is such misogynist. Bullshit yeah, that at this point it stops becoming funny and starts becoming a movie about like I hate what this dude wants to say about. Yeah, women. yeah, because like here's where all the twists start popping off, and like I like a good plot twist, but like. A good twist is something like there's one thing. How about 15 in a row? Yeah. It's like it, it loses. Like the initial shock wears off when there's like, it's like, oh, and then I was actually the killer. It's like, like some movies can do it well. You know, the, um, the clue board game movie. Of course. Like that one's goofy. Cause it's like, no, I did it. I did it. It's like that one. Like that's okay. Cause that's funny. This is imagine, imagine that they told this screenwriter hey we want you to do the clue ending but you we want you to make it deadly serious <laughs> so like here's all the things that supposedly pay off okay the film set from the movie that they watched in the beginning is the same set used in the nude film with lorna bullshit <laughs> emmett linscott is thanked as a producer in that film and he has a creepy painting in his of a clown in his house that's similar to the nasty Glasgow smile that Elizabeth was given posthumously. So he connects those two things. Right. Bleichert visits the scene of the movie and finds evidence the murder might have occurred there because, like, there's, again, that narration from the initial medical examiner scene was like, puncture wound in the right hand. And there's... So her hand was tied up in the yeah. scene and then they see this little cut there. And then he winds up in a shed. <laughs> With a, a bloody mattress that they didn't think to, you know, get rid of. They're just like, yeah, sure, leave it here. No one's ever going to find it, even though yeah. it's like an actual movie set. Which, <laughs> and, to be fair, nobody found it for a while. And his flashlight reveals a clown painted in blood on the wall. And I was like, seriously? Like, who? What? What? Seriously? <laughs> so he goes to the Linskitz house. He accuses Emmett, which, who is Madeline's dad, of killing Elizabeth. And starts to get a confession out of him by shooting his art. Like, shoots a va- <laughs> a, an ex- like an old Ming Dynasty vase and a statue. And it's so funny because at first he like, I was like, you're not going to shoot me. He's like, yeah, like I'll shoot this vase instead. And the guy's like, oh, all right, well, what if I do know something about it? And he shoots the statue and the guy just like straight up says that he killed her. But no, he didn't actually kill her. Emmett's wife, Ramona, who was played by the same lady who played Aunt Petunia in Harry Potter. Which is immediately what Diana had said. It was like, why is Aunt Petunia so mad? (laughs) And like, she does, like, some of her performance is really good, but it gets really cartoony in this last scene. Because I don't really think you could do this in a non-cartoony way. She's great. The writing is shit. That's what this is. Like, she's acting the hell out of it. She's awesome to watch. It's just that it's the worst. (laughs) Because here's basically what happens. Ramona comes out all drunk and, like, explains how they had a gardener named Georgie, who was the real father of Madeline. And Emmett was so jealous, he gave him the Glasgow smile, like, mutilated his face, but then felt guilty about it. And then Emmett offered uh, Elizabeth Short money to go on a date with him. And so you think, oh, like, you know, because they show the scene of her being in the shed, like, oh, I'm not sure I want to be here. And then you think, oh, so, like, he did he get mad? Like, was she rebuffed his advances? Like, no, she walks out and uh, Ramona actually killed her <laughs> and mutilated her. And it's like, because she looked just like my Madeline. And it's like, how does that make sense? She doesn't. It, <laughs> she doesn't look like and, her. And as soon as she confesses, she just puts her gun in her mouth and shoots herself. And they show the newspaper headline as matron killed with accidental gunshot. Well, yeah, because, you know, we got to cover it up. And then, you know, we get this whole, it's just Chinatown, Jake. (laughs) That's not the last twist, though. (laughs) Oh, no. Because Blackert realizes that Lee had already gone by the house because he saw the notes that Bucky had taken on the back of a matchbox and learned all of this earlier. 
So he goes to confront Madeline about it, who reveals that Lee was blackmailing Emmett to keep Madeline's lesbian relationship secret. And then that the pe- like you said, the people who murdered Lee were actually Georgie and Madeline. Uh-huh, yeah, because who was in that suit? That looks an awful lot like Hillary Swank. Oh, that's right, it was Madeline. And he's like confidently like telling her all this stuff and she's kind of smirking back at him. He goes, What do you think? And she goes, I think you'd rather fuck me than kill me, but you don't <laughs> have the guts to do either. And I'm just like what the fuck is going on in any other movie that would be badass <laughs> yeah but it's, but just it's like, paid off so badly at this point that yeah we don't give a it's shit it's like how many more things are you gonna try to convince me happened and thankfully like he she's so confident that he won't shoot her because she looks just like betty and he's she's like she's all that you have but he straight up shoots her and the narration goes like that's not all who i have because guess who he goes back to? That's, oh, that's right. Okay. <laughs> it's Kay. And, of course, if we haven't had enough of the stupid relationships with women, and we haven't even talked about how bad Scarlett Johansson is in this movie. <laughs> like We've gone through all of this, not to even talk about how stiff and wooden and awful she is. Yeah. I mean, I know it's early, and she she can give some good performances now and then, but she's so ridiculously dumb yeah. and stupid in this role she she might be one of those people who just needs good writing yeah. <laughs> because she just can't chew into stuff that isn't there it's hard to be convinced that someone could really find her captivating and sexy and cool other than like she's got this wounded backstory because she was this property of this like violent criminal who like carved his initials into her butt you know like and they also put the tightest sweaters they can possibly put on her to show off her, her, her boob job. So this film basically ends with him standing in front of Kay's door, like, asking her to take him back in. And he has this, like, sudden vision of Elizabeth Short's dead body on the lawn. So we, to show... we do get to see all the gruesome details. <laughs> yeah. The torso separation, the smile on yeah. the face, all the crap that everybody's seen on that stuff. And we see it. Yeah. And I was like, why didn't you just show us that in the first place? Yeah. It's like, what? there's no room for subtlety in this movie. It's like... If David Fincher had done this because of oh, God. of seeing what Zodiac had happened, that would have been the initial shot of her would have been just the full the full gruesome scene. But it would have just been single shot straight on. We see it. So we understand what happened here. David Fincher was initially attached to this project and he wanted to do a pure black and white three hour long film and he ended up dropping it. And Seeing, like, the work, not only that he's done, like, uh, like you said, Zodiac, but also in Mindhunter, that TV series, because there was also a possibility he was thinking about developing, like, an eight-episode TV series, it would have been so good. Oh, yes. You just, you you can't expect some people to sit through a two-hour-long movie that you promised was about a murder when it's really about this weird, like, interplay of all these ridiculous plot lines that don't make any sense and don't pay off. And I just want to start like a petition to beg David Fincher to go back and remake this movie. Cause <laughs> I believe that there is a good movie in there somewhere. I really do think there is. I think there's a good story in there. Uh, unfortunately, I don't really care about these characters <laughs> per se, I, but I've, but maybe that's just because you can get over their backstory in like five minutes <laughs> and then get into the details of what's going on. Or just, you know, tell the actual damn story, because that's good enough most of the time. <laughs> and again, like, 90% of this movie is just, has nothing to do with the actual murder itself. This this woman, like, this actual real woman, again, like, her, her murder, unsolved murder, is used as a backdrop for this incredibly complex, unrealistic story. And it's just, it does a disservice to her, and it does a disservice to us, as the audience, having to watch this. I also see that apparently Juliana Margulies could have played Madeline and Jennifer Connelly could have played Elizabeth Short in Fincher's version. Paul Walker was considered for the role of uh, Bucky, and I think he would have done a very Mark good job. Mark Wahlberg was attached to play Lee before this all started. And then, of course, he left to be in The <laughs> Departed, which I then looked at Diana and went, The Departed came out the same year as this? I forgot this was 2006. <laughs> Like, this feels uh, like a movie from 1997. It does. I think a lot of that, too, has to do with just the poor, like, film coloration. Ugh. 
it just doesn't look very well done. Because, I mean, around that time, we had some really nicely, like, color... For example, that same year, Pan's Labyrinth came out. So, I mean, like, it's not like we couldn't do that kind of stuff. It was just that... <laughs> It didn't happen in, the, in this movie. It didn't happen at all. I, it, it is it is an old style. Well, not an old style, but a, a new Hollywood style director rooted in the 70s and new wave filmmaking. Mm-hmm. He's got a very specific style and he's got an ego to boot. And he made the type of movie he always makes. Yeah. And it doesn't work for this story. Yeah. Or these actors. Yeah. Or this script. It, it just really doesn't. And, like, I know that normally we don't we don't talk this long about a movie. Like, I, don't, I think this will probably end up being our longest episode yet. But, again, that's also because this is probably one of the longest movies I've watched yet on this podcast. And, like I said, like, I'm always the kind of person that likes to defend a th- something that I initially don't like. I mean, like, I can definitely see how there are things in this movie that might have been interesting. That these plot lines coming together could have been cool. But when a movie... Like, throughout the whole time, you're like, why is this movie taking so long, first of all? Like, I can't believe that it's only been 30 minutes and, like, we've barely covered anything. (laughs) And then at the end of the movie, if you're left feeling completely unsatisfied, it's not a good movie. And you can't pretend it is good. It is a good one. It's indefensible. It really is. And it's and it's indefensible too in that it's aged so poorly. Mm. It's aged so poorly with its view of women, with its view of murders and victims. You know that that whole undercurrent stirring while I'm watching this movie, going like, "Oh God, this is all garbage," because it doesn't apply to any actual emotions that these people would actually be feeling. And you like you can try and read like meaning into it, but again, like it, it fails with subtlety. Like even. There's this one thing that I just like pointed out is like they go into a diner that's by the seaside and when they exit the diner it shows the name of the diner and it's literally diner by the sea. <laughs> literally that's what it is. And you're just like why? Like why are you doing this to me? Like what is this choice that you're making here? And, I, uh, I I think that's a pretty good summary of all of the crap in this movie. <laughs> and I I feel like they could have like Definitely shot all this because all of the investigation that Bleicher does, like about anything that could have actually been with the murder of Elizabeth, like especially we consider her like she was a real person. Like there was the investigation going into like people who produced films around that time, but no, this is just like I guess this is kind of like that producer thing with the Linscott family like giving money to some of these studios, but this is like total like just out of nowhere, no real connection. Which I guess is their kind the the author's kind of way of saying like this is why it was never truly solved because it wasn't like who you would really expect but like it just it doesn't feel like any of it was worth it like you shouldn't watch a movie and think most of what I watched in that was pointless <laughs> no no like it should it should be like somewhat important like because they we didn't even go over everyone they interview as potential suspects like. They interview her dad. They, like, mention that she had abusive boyfriends and husbands. Like, and again, it's just, like, pulling those real details from the from her life for literally no reason other than to pretend that it's still about the Black Dahlia. Other than to shame the victim, which is all this movie does. If you really yeah. want to get down oh, to the yeah. root of it, it is, it is a movie that literally just paints her as, as this broad Madonna whore complex. That's all she is to this movie. Like, even her dad says something like, what else could you expect if you're walking down the street in those tight little black outfits? Because, and again, I know I keep hammering this point down, but, like, Elizabeth Short was a real woman. And when she, before, the last outfit that she was seen in was actually a tailored black suit. And the media, when they talked about this case because they wanted to drum up sensation about it, pretended that what she actually was wearing was a sheer top and a tight black pencil skirt. Yeah. And again, it's it's that idea, like, continuing to blame this woman. And it, I know it's like, you know, if is a movie good if it gets you to talk about things? You know, it gets you to talk about real important themes. Like, in this case, you know, victim blaming, um, sensationalization of murder, like, the, the female body on display, male gaze, stuff like that. It's like, yeah, I guess it got me to talk about it, but not... That wasn't the point of this movie. It didn't want you to do this. Well, more importantly... It only got me to talk about it because the movie made such a strong stance about it on its fucking own. Yeah. <laughs> that's my that's the problem is 
if a movie is examining those things uncritically, like if you if you take a step back and film this movie as an examination of you've got detectives trying to solve this case because that's the compelling narrative here. Mm-hmm. You've got a group of detectives trying to solve this thing, and then on top of it, the media is creating this frenzy around it, which is really hampering their ability to actually figure out what happened to this girl. Mm-hmm. And that's what really happened because there are some very legitimate sub suspects that like really tie in yeah and they tie in i I mean there's there's a very solid theory that the same dude that killed her is the cleveland torso killer yeah so they there's very huge ideas that there's a real serial killer that went after this girl and that the hollywood media took the story over and obscured any ability for them to do it yeah and this movie noticed it mentioned it and then threw it in the garbage and it was like hey you know what this is bad but also i'm gonna do that exact same thing exactly (laughs) and all the movie did was just shame her into being this depressed and but exotic sex kitten when in reality she's so much more complex yeah, it, it's like, you just, like, what you're watching here, it's like, okay, she's, like, a plot device this movie, but she's, like, a legitimately was a real person! It's like, why are you doing this? Ugh, ugh, this is, it's just, like, there's so much we could talk about here, so much to unpack, and, you know, typically, like, whenever I have a guest on and we're doing something like this, we like to joke around, it's like, hey, like, you know, let's come up with a crime based on this movie to do, and I'm gonna say, screw that, because the crime related to this movie today is actually making somebody else watch it, so... <laughs> You're, I'm calling the police right now, and your ass is going to jail That's fair. for making me watch this but movie. But can I, can I propose a crime that we can commit to try to redeem ourselves? Okay. I've, I've got one. We are going to break Josh Hartnett out of movie jail <laughs> and give him a second chance. Yes. But only to put Scarlett Johansson in. <laughs> it's like... And, and that... That's the qualifier from Diana because of all the crap that went down with Rub and Tug. And fortunately, she's decided to leave the project, but Mm -hmm. not after, you know, just being a giant ass about it. I think Josh Hartnett deserves that second chance. Aaron Eckert, too. I mean, come on. These guys are actually legit good character actors. Let's give Josh Hartnett that second chance and put ScarJo away, but only with uh, concurrent time served. So, you know, all the time she's already going to be serving because of this crap. We'll just add this performance onto it. And then she can get out in a little while and come back. You know, there's like, have you ever watched How I Met Your Mother? Oh, yeah. So, like, there's this one scene where I know it sounds like a total tangent here, but bear with me. Uh, <laughs> you know, there's this idea that if you have like a graph, you can create, you can, you can chart, you know, how worth it it is if a woman is crazy and her attractiveness yes. on that same scale, you know? And I think the same thing can be said for like Hollywood actors. And it's like one axis being like their attractiveness, the other one being uh, their <laughs> acting ability and like <laughs> how much we'll tolerate poor acting if they just look pretty and i think it's different like you know because josh harnett is a striking dude you know but we as a society were only able to tolerate him for so long <laughs> it was like in you certain know, like, roles <laughs> in, in certain roles i i think i think we can put him in with the paul feig crew put him in those paul <laughs> feig movies put him in with the Apatow crew, and he can fit in as a nice, handsome dude foil. Yeah, and I mean, like, he definitely brings out other people's acting because his is such a blank slate. He needs a James Marsden resurgence. <laughs> Get him in a Westworld. Yeah, and then, like, on that same idea of the scale, we have people like Scarlett Johansson who, like, I just, I'm not, I don't like saying people are bad actresses or actors because it's, it's subjective, but I've never seen her in a role that made me go like, wow, what an incredible performance. I, you think, know? We, I think we might be hitting the bell curve with her. I think we might yes. be finally Black Black <laughs> Widow. And then I haven't seen Under the Skin, but I've heard amazing things about that. But then after that, it, it seems to be trailing off significantly. Mm-hmm. Unlike Charlize Theron, who apparently just keeps going up. <laughs> yeah, there's no ceiling for some actresses. That's just, they just keep going and going. I know. Well... I, I definitely agree with your with your idea for trading them out of cinematic jail. Let's give Josh Harnett a second chance. Okay, I've made I've made my <laughs> plea deal so I can stay out. 
Okay, so we are our goals with this is to give Josh Harnett a second chance, put Scarlett Johansson in cinematic like movie. I guess yeah, we're, uh, we're breaking we're breaking Josh out of movie jail and putting ScarJo in, putting <laughs> ScarJo in, and then also making David Fincher recreate this movie. <laughs> oh, good God, yes, that's a please. that's a separate that's a separate side. It's a different different campaign, but Fincher, we can get please. that same. Just come back to it, just okay, save bud? us, please. Well, it's been awesome talking with you about this truly terrible movie that took Ugh. way too long to go over because literally even the movie had to last two hours. So for us to talk about, not only talk about the plot, but also talk about all the other stuff we did in about an hour, I think we did good. I, I think I think we got through it. <laughs> so where can people find you? Where, where's like your media presence, your podcast, all that sort of stuff? So all our podcasts are on iTunes. I think we've got one that's not on Stitcher, but you can find us in almost every uh, podcast player. You mm-hmm. just search Macintosh and the ampersand mod, M-A-U-D, and you'll find all of our stuff there. You can also go to MacintoshandMod.com, the whole thing spelled out. We're on Twitter, at MacintoshMod. We're on Facebook. Uh, if you just search those two names, you should be able to find us somewhere. And uh, we... Like I said, we've got My Little Pony, we've got Riverdale, and we've got movies, so we should have something for just about everybody. (laughs) And I will also include links to the podcast in our show notes. As for us, y'all know where to find us. It's www.hatepodcast.com, on Facebook at Guess What You're Gonna Hate, on Twitter at Hate Podcast, and our email address is guesswhatyou'regonnahate at gmail.com. Currently, if you are enjoying the show, if you want to review the show, and then send a screen cap of your review to Guess What You're hate at gmail.com along with your address i will send you a sticker so <laughs> do it's it it's a good sticker it's a cute little sticker you'll like it that's about it you know everybody let's just put you know like how in dragon ball z when they put their hands up to the sky to get the energy to do the spirit bomb we just all need to in congregation right now put your hands up and just hope that josh harnett escapes from cinematic movie jail and then manages to throw ScarJo in. Just, <laughs> just take your time. Put your energy out there. It'll happen. All right. Thanks so much, David. Thank you.